Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. I'm really excited about this episode as we have our first international perspective on EL education on the show. We have Paula Marcus with us, who comes to us from Toronto in the province of Ontario. Speaking with Paula really helped broaden my horizons of what's happening in EL programs outside of the United States. She discusses many of the issues that we've addressed on Highest Aspirations, like high expectations, strong welcoming orientation programs, social services, teacher preparation programs, and the role of technology in teaching English language learners. But I think the perspective from Canada is going to give us a little bit of a different flavor, and hopefully there's something that we can use to address the needs in our own EL programs here in the United States. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode. We would love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or you can use the Anchor app to send us a voice message, which we will definitely listen to and possibly even use to inform us on future episodes. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Paula Marcus. How do educational systems in Canada support highly diverse populations of students? What supports are in place to help newcomers and their families succeed in their new country? What can ELL stakeholders in the United States learn from our colleagues in Canada? We discuss these topics and much more through the lens of the province of Ontario with Paula Marcus. Paula is a former ESL coordinator for the Toronto School Board and sessional lecturer at the University of Toronto. Let's get started. Good morning, Paula. Welcome to Highest Aspirations. Thanks, Steve, for inviting me to join you today and for including Canada in your uh, online conversation about ELLs. Absolutely. We're happy to do so, and we're really excited to get an international perspective here. So I want to start by framing our conversation around something I've heard from you and others about Canada, and that is that Canada is a small country that needs immigrants to grow. The first thing I love about this is the asset-based approach to immigration, that this is a good thing, that this helps a country um, grow and succeed. But what does it mean for EL education and policy in Canada? Well, um, it's true that uh, as Canadians, we do try to take the approach that everybody who uh, is coming to live here is an asset to our country. Um, everyone wants to contribute positively to Canada society after they come here and everyone wants the best for their children and their families. So um, how some of these uh, views are expressed in ELL policy and I want to start by saying that I can really only speak about Ontario, the province of Ontario, because this is what I know. It is Canada's most populous province, but there are nine other provinces and, and three territories, and each one of them does set its own policy. So I'm only speaking about Ontario. But um, we have a, a, a policy for uh, supporting English language learners, and I think a lot of the things in it do uh, reflect an asset-based approach for uh, English language learner education. For example, um, there is a, 
a section in the policy that states that, um, of course, we do uh, support separate and targeted uh, ESL instruction for learners, but that should only happen for part of the day so that all students, all English language learners, know that they will be in an integrated setting with their English first language speaking peers for at least part of every school day. So we don't have them completely segregated ever. And I, I think that's, um, that's an important part of our policy. As well, um, one of the things that shines through really clearly in our policy are that we have high expectations for all of our newcomer students as we do for all students in Ontario. So when we're adapting our classroom program for English language learners, we keep those high expectations. We don't reach back to previous grades um, in order to modify their program, but instead we modify the grade level curriculum expectations so that they align with the cur student's current level of English language proficiency. So that's how we keep them um, on a high academic level commensurate with their their age and their grade level ability and we continue to focus on high expectations for them while adapting their program for their current level of English. Um, we also try to include all or as many language communities um, in the conversation and in receiving information about education in Ontario. So for example, if you were to go on the Ontario Ministry of Education website, you would find a very large section of information for parents translated into, I don't know, I think they have at least 25 different languages. So when a new family arrives here speaking Mandarin or um, Farsi, or Pashtu or Tagalog or any of the 100 plus languages that we might see in Ontario, um, they might be able to find information about a wide variety of topics relating to the education system all for free in their language. Um, so that's another, another part of uh, our policy in education for English language learners. Um, we also put a focus on making sure that every school and every school board has in place a set of welcoming and orientation procedures for all newcomer um, students and their families. And that's part of the policy too. So it makes sure that every school board is thinking about everything that they can do to make the arrival and orientation experience for newcomers as pleasant, as inclusive, as supportive, and as diverse as possible. Um, oh, sorry, there's just one other thing that I want to mention. And that is that um, in terms of standardized testing, we do have a lot of accommodations and exemptions for uh, English language learners who are in their first years of schooling in Ontario. For example, uh, there's a grade 10 literacy test, which is a credentialing test for every student. They have to pass it to get their high school diploma. But English language learners can opt out of that and instead take a 110 hour course that covers all of the um, literacy skills that are tested on the literacy test. And over the span of 110 hours, they're gonna get um, a deeper and a more thorough understanding of 
literacy skills. So that's another thing that we do to support them. That's great. So I take um, a few key highlights out of that. Um, the first thing that I think is is key in no particular order, but um, the idea of welcoming um, procedures, uh, orientation procedures that seem to be somewhat standardized in Ontario so that each school district has the tools and are equipped with the, with the information and the procedures they need to work with students coming from a variety of different places. Um, I also love the idea, and I hear this a lot about sort of maintaining. We call it here this this term rigor is kind of uh, taking taking over. I think um, in terms of just uh, keeping expectations high for English language learners, just like for other students. And I'm hearing that a lot from people here in the states, but it seems to be a little bit um, more sporadic in terms of where that's happening. Um, and same with the idea of what different school districts have for. Uh, tools and resources to bring these English language learners in. So we find that schools with good leadership um, and and people who are educated in these matters have those, but they tend to be islands. Do you think that that's more um, prevalent in Ontario that, that, you know, like you mentioned, each school has this because it's kind of been designed higher up and they all have the ability to kind of use it the way they want? How does that work? Well, um, so when I talk about high expectations and making curriculum modifications in Ontario, just like in any school district across Canada or in the United States, there's a, a, a provincial government set of mandated curriculum expectations or outcomes, right, that students are expected to have achieved uh, by the end of a particular course or school year. And one of the things that I think uh, helps us focus on higher expectations is that um, uh, we are trained and we are mandated by the Ministry of Education not to um, water down those expectations, but rather to adapt them in such a way that we're still keeping the big ideas, we're still keeping the academic content, we're still keeping the major learnings, but we're just adapting them for the current student's current level of English proficiency. Yeah, and that takes me to a question that I had before. So I know in Canada, education is a provincial responsibility and funding for education is collected and equally distributed to schools. Does that affect the, the strategies and the resources that you're talking about? I mean, it's different here in the States. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Um, well, okay, again, I can't speak for every province, but I'm assuming that there's a similar thing happening in other provinces. Um, every school board receives a standard amount of money for every pupil um, who attends the school board. And then on top of that, there's a standard amount of money that uh, flows to school boards for each newcomer student. In a, a, it's a four-year grant, and it's in a decreasing amount over the course of those four years. So I think it amounts to something close to 10,000 Canadian dollars a year. So more of it in the first year, less of it in the second year, and so on over the four first students' first four years in Canada. So um, I think that allows there to be, I guess, um, more equity in terms of the services that English language learners can access from school to school and school board to school board because the funding model is the same no matter what school board you're attending. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's it's like that whole idea of 
um, having, I think, you know, that you have a structure in place that's making sure that this is equitable. We talk a lot, and I mean, in the States, not only about ELs, um, but just about uh, the opportunity gap and the idea that so much is dependent on zip code. Um, it seems like having that kind of funding model might help with those kinds of problems that we're um, certainly experiencing here, and I'm sure um, people are experiencing in other places as well. So I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, you have, um, just like in the States, you're seeing a lot of students from a variety of different places. Somewhere along the line, we've coined, I don't know who did, but there's been a coin, sorry, a term coined uh, super diversity. We're seeing it in a lot of articles. And it basically refers to the idea that, um, you know, classroom teachers, ELL teachers are seeing um, English language learners from a variety of different places. Oftentimes, this is this is posed as as being a huge challenge. Um, in some sectors, it's 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 something that's posed as being an asset that we have these students from so many different places. My understanding is that in Canada, this seems to have been the case. This idea of super diversity for longer than in in the states. Could you talk with us about how you in Ontario have responded to this challenge and how uh, you have taken it? to be an asset rather than a huge challenge? Okay, well, that's an interesting term, super diversity. I have to say that I haven't heard it used um, in the Canadian context because as you said, that's just the regular situation here. We have families and students coming to us all over the world. I think um, in the Toronto District School Board, we have 175 different languages represented among the population. But I think traditionally in the United States, yes, you've always had immigrants from all over the world, but there is a very large um, English language learner population who are Spanish speaking. And I think somewhere I heard that um, there are around 35 million Spanish speakers in the United States, which is equal to the whole population of Canada. So uh, it goes to show you how, you know, there is one really huge um, majority group of English language learners in the United States that hasn't ever really existed here in Canada. So, you know, I think our historical contexts for uh, diversity are somewhat different. Um, you know, every time the political winds change somewhere in the world, Canada will see an influx of immigrants and refugees and refugee claimants from that particular area speaking that particular language. So, you know, over the course of my 30-year career, I've, I've seen um, uh, a lot of people in the 80s coming from Iran who spoke Parsi because of the political situation there in the, at the time. Uh, we had the influx of Somalis starting in the late 80s, which continues actually Somali immigration here until the present day. Uh, we had a very large influx of um, Cantonese-speaking people from Hong Kong in the late 1990s because of the hand back of Hong Kong to China. Um, we had people coming here uh, from the war in Yugoslavia and Bosnia in the 90s. Um, you name it, whatever's happening in the world, uh, the Syrian refugee crisis, we've had a huge uh, upswing in uh, speakers of Arabic uh, coming to Ontario in the last few years. We have a really large population of immigrants coming now from the Philippines, mostly speaking Tagalog, but speaking some other languages as well. So. It's just a huge um, 
wonderful uh, mashup of people coming from all over the world, speaking all languages and bringing with them their rich backgrounds and experiences, which, you know, we really feel enrich Canadian society and, and make it more diverse, more exciting, and give us more viewpoints to look at the world from. So some of the things I think that um, where we do have this asset-based approach in our education system would be, we have a program in Ontario, it's called International Languages. So um, unlike the US where you do have um, bilingual education and predominantly Spanish-English uh, bilingual education, but other languages as well, we don't have that here in Ontario because there are just too many uh, large language groups to be able to support that kind of initiative. It would be extremely difficult to uh, find the, the trained uh, educational personnel to do that and to find the locations. So what we've done instead is to create a program of uh, helping students to maintain and develop their home languages which is called International Languages, and it's funded through our Provincial Ministry of Education. And students can take courses. They're often after school. They might be on the weekends, but sometimes they're also integrated within the regular school day. And of course, there's no charge for any of this. And they can take courses in their home language in dozens of different home and community languages. Anyone can take these courses. So for example, you might come from a Spanish-speaking home but you, you're just really interested in learning Japanese. And so you can go to a Japanese international language class. So I think that's, that's one of the ways in which um, we take an asset-based approach to the diversity of languages and cultures that we have here. Um, we also uh, very much try to join up our education uh, system with settlement services. Um, so we have a program that's funded jointly by the federal and the provincial government. It's called Settlement Workers in Schools. And this program has really grown a lot in the last 15 years. And it provides trained school settlement workers who are on site um, in basically every school in the Toronto District School Board, or sometimes they're roving around from one school to another, to help immigrant and refugee families and their children to adjust to life in Canada with all of the um, challenges that someone moving to a new country might encounter, everything from employment to housing, to medical care, to connecting with resources in their home languages, um, understanding the school system, all of it. So I, I think that's another, another service that we have here that uh, really um, looks at newcomers as, um, yes, they come from their own countries. Uh, we're not trying to uh, negate the experiences of um, and the rich backgrounds they have of living in other countries and cultures, but we want to help them get oriented and adjusted to Canada and settlement services really play a part in that. Yeah, and it certainly sounds to me like these services are as much about integrating into Canadian society as they are about allowing these newcomers to maintain their own languages, to maintain their own culture. 
and certainly there's a lot of research out there, um, particularly now, and it's actually a lot of it's geared toward early childhood, but I think it applies to everyone, that maintaining that language um, allows for future success. So I guess my next question here, I guess, is more anecdotally. I don't know if you have research at, the, at, at your fingertips to, to talk about this, but what do you see happening um, in where you are with these students after they receive these services? Like, what do you think the main benefits are if you speak with these people or you see where they go in two years or five years or 10 years um, that these services have really allowed them to do? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, certainly in their, in their first years in Canada, I think newcomers to Canada are extremely appreciative uh, of the services because in many cases, it's the settlement agency, especially for refugees, it's the settlement agency that will hook refugees up with a, with a permanent and stable place to live you know, with an apartment or housing that they can afford in a community where they're comfortable. Um, And it's the settlement agencies often that are the hosts of uh, ESL classes for the adults and who will also uh, run a lot of other programs that have an immediate impact on the family, like, um, I don't know, like speed dating for uh, applying for a job, you know, if you have a bunch of uh, potential employers come in and a number of newly arrived immigrants who want to get more information and find out what's available in the job market, mentorship, job mentorship programs, things like that. So I think that these, all of these services do affect um, newcomer families very profoundly. And I think they also create a climate where, um, Adults and children feel welcome here. Uh, they don't feel like they're just thrown to the dogs to try to um, manage in Canadian society. And they also feel like they're you know, part of this quilt of diversity that we're putting together here in Canada. And people in the settlement agencies, most of them at one time were immigrants themselves. So it's a powerful role model to see for example, um, I, I worked very closely with a, a woman from who arrived here as a refugee from Syria only about two and a half years ago. She was a, so, a social worker in her own country. Her English was, was fairly serviceable when she got here. And, you know, she hit the ground running in terms of learning English. And um, a couple of uh, years ago already, she'd only been in Canada less than a year. She became a school settlement worker and was... Uh, supporting other families and passing on all the experience and the knowledge that she had in learning to navigate Canadian culture and Canadian systems and ways of doing things to other newcomers. So it's a great way of creating a society where we all, you know, see that so many of us have come here from other places and been successful and our children are doing well. And it's, it's all around you. So I don't think that can help but have a positive impact on on newcomers yeah boy this is a hearing you talk about this is a breath of fresh air right now (laughs) given given the political climate that we're dealing with here and and some of the issues that uh that are happening that i won't get into at the moment because it's a whole other podcast episode um that then a road that i'm not willing to go down at this point but i will say that just you know hearing you talk about this um you're talking about a full service model the example that you just gave is talking about basically 
um, I would call it a homegrown situation where you have somebody coming into the country from another place, taking advantage of the services that are provided to them. And then that person turning around and being able to, to provide that same service to other people who need it. What a great cycle and what a great way um, for that person to become um, a key member of a community and help others um, to become integrated into um, a society that clearly, it sounds like as a whole, um, is very welcoming and and sort of sees this all around them. Yeah, I think this is this has come to be uh, something that I think we're very proud of in Canada. It's come to be a very common occurrence that you will see uh, newcomers uh, coming here, you know, taking whatever time they need to get adjusted and then becoming successful and turning around and paying that forward to others in whatever field they're in. Great. So I want to shift gears um, a little bit here. Um, and I know that we're, you know, you're, you've, you've said a few times, which I think is important that you can speak to Ontario and specifically Toronto, but uh, if we can kind of zoom out a little bit, um, you know, one thing that, that Canada and the U.S. definitely has in common is that w they're both geographically uh, large countries with lots of different demographic areas. So I'm curious to learn um, how people and in, in organizations in different regions have responded to new populations coming in. I can imagine that that immigrants coming to Toronto, which you sort of just described, probably have a very different experience than those coming to a place like Fort McMurray. I did my research and checked the maps a little bit and looked around at different regions. So I, I wonder if you might be able to give us at least sort of a, uh, a glimpse of how maybe it's different in a rural area or a different where there's lots of industry as opposed to a big city. Mm -hmm. well, it, well, it's true that uh, Toronto is probably, you know, the most linguistically and culturally diverse uh, pop, um, city in Canada. I think you'd be surprised by how diverse a place like Fort McMurray is as well. Um, uh, people are, are newcomers to Canada are maybe starting off sometimes in some of Canada's larger urban areas like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, um, Calgary, but often for employment opportunities, they're moving to um, smaller places um, and that's having the effect of making a lot of those smaller places more diverse. So I know, for example, like Fort McMurray has a, a fairly large Islamic school there because uh, there are a lot of uh, people who've moved there from various uh, Muslim countries and wanted to send their children for a religious education. So really more and more, we're seeing the, the level of diversity, cultural and linguistic diversity that we have largest urban areas, it's permeating down to mid-sized communities. And even now in small communities, like with, a couple of years ago when we had like this countrywide mobilization in order to fulfill our, at the time, new prime minister's promise of bringing in 25,000 Syrian refugees in three months. People from every part of Canada, urban, suburban, and rural, stepped up and formed um, citizens groups so that they could uh, privately sponsor uh, Syrian refugee families. And so there are families who are really all over Canada now um, who have been brought in through that program. And by the way, I think um, they've got some kind of like a ticker uh, 
a, a digital ticker uh, on one of the uh, refugee and immigration websites, and I think they're up to close to 43 or four, something like that thousand Syrian refugees that have come into Canada in the last two years. And that's amazing. On everywhere. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it how you describe how sometimes they, you know, they start up in the bigger cities and they sort of it, it permeated out. And that's got to be great just for, um, you know, establishing those smaller communities also as um, multicultural, multilingual um, places. Yeah. You know, I, I, I will say one thing and, it's, you know, I hesitate to make generalizations, but, you know, sometimes um, if I'm asked or if I think about like, what's the one defining characteristic of Canadian culture and the, the Canadian psyche as a whole? Um, I, I would say and probably if you asked uh, people, a lot of them would say the same thing. It's diversity. That's that's what Canada. Me, I mean, of course, we love our freedom and our democracy. But I think the thing that pops into many Canadians' heads when you ask them what's the most important thing in Canadian society, it's our respect for and celebration of diversity. That's great. I think that's a obviously a great uh, mentality to have. I want to shift over a little bit to talk um, about. Uh, teachers in Canada and what they're doing to sort of work with these students. So my, my first, I've sort of two questions about that and the, I'll, I'll break them up into two. The first one is about um, in the U S we're, we're really struggling um, I think to find highly qualified teachers, um, particularly for dual language programs. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but it's, it's definitely presented a challenge as these programs that we have here, um, you know, continue to grow in popularity. Is Canada facing that challenge, or I guess you can speak with, uh, to Ontario, are you facing that challenge of finding qualified teachers to do the work that you need to do with these diverse groups of students? Okay, uh, no, not exactly. Um, in the last decade or more, um, Ontario has actually been facing a, a rather serious oversupply of teachers. Um, you could send some our way, we'll, we'll, we'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then they're, they're probably some of them are going to the States, but they're going other places too. There a lot of them are going to China and Japan after they graduate to teach and all over the world because the last decade or so, the jobs have not been here um, due to changing demographics um, and due to um, a, about, gosh, it's about 15 years ago now, the government changed the high school system. It used to be a five-year system. We used to have a final year that was called grade 13. And in fact, I, when I was in high school, I did grade 13 and my children did grade 13. About 15 years ago, they scrapped it. And so now we only have 12 years of school. And that contributed to it somewhat as well. And, you know, just the whole, you know, baby boomer, um, bulge. Uh, and now those baby boomer teachers like myself are retiring. And just in the last few years, we're starting to see the job market get a, li a little bit eased up for newly graduated teachers. So we're not facing that same kind of challenge in Ontario at the, at the moment. Having said that, though, the, the newly graduated teacher who get jobs the quickest 
are the ones who uh, are qualified to teach French and in French immersion programs. Right, because they're able to do those dual language That's uh, right. programs. What, what about um, what about teacher education and professional development? How, you know, in your experience, are, how, how are Canadian teachers prepared to work with ELs? And I guess I'll preface that by saying that almost everybody that I speak with about teacher preparation and teacher education in the United States says they are not prepared to work with English language learners. Very few of them have the coursework or the experience to do so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, uh, a few years ago, the Ontario government, which is also in charge, we don't have any private universities in Canada, right? All of the universities are publicly funded and publicly supported. So even your top level universities in every province across the country, those are public universities and anyone can attend there and pay the uh, provincially set tuition fee. So um, a Uh, About five years ago now, maybe a little bit less, um, the government changed teacher training programs from a one-year post-BA program to a two-year program. And I think everybody in the education community sees this as a good thing because there's so much more now to learn and to be aware of and to master as you become a teacher that teacher trainees can really benefit from the extra year, not only of practical experience in classrooms, but also of having the opportunity to uh, study more about how to support all the diverse groups of learners that they will be teaching in their classrooms, students with exceptionalities and special education needs, um, as well as uh, students who are learning English as as an additional language. So now we have a two-year uh, teacher training program in all of the universities that offer um, teacher training courses. And the, the university that I teach at, which is the University of Toronto, um, has instituted a mandatory course called Supporting English Language Learners for every teacher trainee that goes through the program and graduates. So all of those students will have taken a course in how to adapt their programs, support the needs, um, engage families, newcomer families, um, and work with English language learners. Um, I don't know how many of the other universities have the same type of course, but certainly at the University of Toronto, they've recognized that it's a it's an important part of being a, a teacher and supporting the needs of all students in our schools today. Well, it's great to know that that course is a requirement. I mean, that's something that, uh, as I mentioned, is severely missing here um, in the States, and most people that I speak with here would agree. So uh, I have one more question before we get into some um, finding out more about how we can uh, learn about what you're doing up there and any resources that you have. But my last question is about um, technology. Uh, You know, educational technology is becoming hugely important, certainly impacting schools in in, in positive ways and, and sometimes negative ways. So how has technology helped schools, in your experience in Canada and Toronto and Ontario, impact uh, English language learners? Okay, well, technology, um, like everything else in life, is great when you use it in a balanced way. Um, but for English language learners, I think it's really helped us to uh, get into doing kind of projects that allow students to incorporate their identities, their backgrounds, their home languages 
in with learning English, which we know makes for more literacy engagement and better um, English language learning outcomes. So for example, um, and a lot of this um, work that we're doing in the TESB is based on the work of uh, Dr. Jim Cummins from, uh, from OISE, the University of Toronto, and Margaret Early from University of British Columbia. And they talk a lot about identity tests, which is uh, work and projects that students do, which um, allow them to bring their home languages, cultures, and their previous experiences into the mix so that they feel more connected to what they're learning and it allows them to have more confidence and to really grow in their English abilities all at the same time. So technology has allowed us to really um, do some amazingly creative identity text work with students. So for example, a lot of our uh, teachers now are uh, doing um, student-created multilingual books and then um, having those having them published by online publishing sites and then you can do it as, as an online book or in a lot of cases the teachers will have it um, professionally printed and bound and comes out looking like a real um, commercially available children's book, all written by students and often available in dual language or multiple language versions. So that's something really exciting. Um, it's also allowed our students to um, create a lot of uh, resources for learning English as a second language. Like we have some projects going on in some of our schools right now where the newcomer students who've been here for a little while have been writing uh, simplified readers for the brand new arrivals in helping them get oriented and adjusted to their new school. So they have titles like My Agenda, My Backpack, The Cold Weather, Recess, Our School, and so on. And they're all um, beautifully graphically set up with nice visuals and written by the kids themselves gives them a lot of pride and allows us to come up with the kinds of individually tailored materials that exactly suit our needs. Um, our ESL um, Coordinators Association in Ontario has received some government funding to produce some a whole series of books like that for English language learners. So we've got a huge series called Making Good Choices, which is again um, uh, created by students with their teachers, focusing on different aspects of learning about financial literacy in Canada. And then another series that you can get online, and all of this is freely available on the ESL coordinators website. Um, they've done uh, a series of picture books for, um, it, it, the catalyst was the, the Syrian newcomers coming here, and they're all about uh, kind of the self-care practices that students, uh, young children and adolescents can engage in um, when they're feeling stressed. As we know, um, many refugees who come here have been through a lot of trauma. So, And these books are available in English and Arabic, and again, free to download and print from the website. So um, I, also, we, you know, we've done a lot of uh, 
digital storytelling, uh, movie making, um, allows the students to incorporate voiceovers and texts in their own languages and photographs of their countries to interview their family members and to really produce um, materials, multimedia projects and materials that reflect their lives, their experiences, their backgrounds. And this really goes a long way in helping them feel more confident here and in adding to their English language development. That's great. I take a couple of key points from there. First of all, the just the incredible amount of personalization and that is that you can get to using technology um, to address the specific needs of specific groups of students. And then I also see a trend here with what you were talking about before when somebody who is a newcomer um, utilized the, the settlement services and then was able to work for them. Well, here, students who are newcomers are using um, resources that are given to them, but then when they're able to, using technology, they can create resources for others. So it just seems like this wonderful cycle where there's a need um, and the person that's addressing that need is a person who's been through it before and also a person who um, will learn more of the language uh, by producing these things um, in, in whatever language is necessary. So that's, that's amazing. I love that. And I think that, that answers part of my next question, um, which is I wanted to ask you if there's any books or resources that you would recommend to us um, that, that, that have had an influence on you either personally or professionally. I think those resources will definitely um, link to those because I think those sound great. But is there anything else that you'd recommend uh, as people start to think about um, doing this work and maybe they're thinking about what's happening up in uh, Canada or in Toronto based on what we've talked about today? Okay, well, um, one, one uh, book that I'd like to mention, and I'm going to mention it because it's, um, it's from a Canadian author published by University of Toronto Press. Um, is called Supporting Refugee Children, Strategies for Educators. And it's written by Dr. Jan Stewart, who is a professor at the University of Winnipeg in Manitoba. Um, she is, I would say, Canada's foremost expert in uh, supporting refugee children, uh, in both in schools and in the community. She's done an incredible amount of really fine work on this topic. Um, and I, I would highly recommend this book. Um, I, it, there isn't a, lo a lot out there like it. And uh, Jan Stewart has done an amazing job, not only of, you know, detailing all of the experiences that refugee students may go through, but also in presenting a lot of really fine lessons where we can work not only with refugee students, but with other students who are in school with them to help everybody understand what refugee students may be going through and how to support them better. So that would be um, one book that I would definitely recommend to your readers that they might not be familiar with. Great. I appreciate that. I'm glad that you mentioned a Canadian author. I mean, it sounds like from what we've heard today that you have a lot of things, um, I'm not going to say solve, but you're certainly, um, I think, ahead of the game as compared to uh, some of the things that we're doing here. And I love that that's about supporting refugee children. And uh, you also mentioned um, how you can support them and other students. Another trend that we see when I'm speaking with people is, you know, we, we want to focus on, on working with these English language learners, but we also want to remember that good instruction for English language learners is good instruction for everybody. So how can we bring everybody into the fold so that they can work together? Exactly. But the, the 
potential pitfall of that, um, which I've seen a lot in my career is, and I totally agree with you that um, good ESL instruction is good instruction from everybody. But the danger is that you don't want to go down that road of saying, well, if the classroom teacher is providing good support strategies, then we don't need any targeted ESL support or any ESL teachers. Great point. And that happens well. Yeah, absolutely. So last question, um, you've mentioned a lot of resources, but I want to give you the opportunity to, to, to uh, let people know how they might find out more about Yale Education in Canada. They've just listened to this. You, they've learned a lot. Maybe they're curious. Are there any other resources that you'd point people to to learn more about it? Well, they can certainly visit um, the uh, Ontario Ministry of Education website. And they have a website called edugains, E-D-U-G-A-I-N-S dot C-A. And on edugains, uh, there is a button that you can click for English language learners where people will find all the different uh, published documents from the Ontario Ministry of Education that pertain to supporting English language learners, as well as uh, some video casts and some podcasts. So there's a wealth of information on edugains.ca. And the other website that I would direct them to is the website of the ESL Coordinators Group in Ontario, which is called ERGO, E-R-G-O, <clears throat> stands for ESL ELD Resource Group of Ontario. And the website is ergo-on.ca. And on that website, um, again, people will find links to um, all these different uh, free series of materials that they can download and use with their classes, uh, the financial literacy series, making good choices, as well as the live well series, which looks at how to help students deal with stress. So those would be uh, two websites that I direct people to for starters. That's great. Well, Paula, thank you so much for providing us with this international perspective. I learned a lot. We will link all of the resources that you mentioned over the course of the episode um, on our website so people can look at those. And I just want to thank you so much for spending the time um, and uh, I look forward to collaborating more in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.